0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: Louise Callahan's job seems to be getting into places that the rest of us will never go. And this month, that meant finding her way— onto an abandoned oil tanker in the Gulf.
2: It's quite hard to get permission to go and visit these types of vessels. So we, how shall I say this? We sort of slipped in under the radar and we climbed a ladder uh, on board the ship.
1: Louise is going to take us aboard the M.T. Iber and tell us the really quite extraordinary story of those she met and how they got there. It's a tale of hunger, storms, And floating fruit.
2: They just started seeing watermelons bobbing past them in the sea. I mean, it's like something out of a Gabriel Garcia Marquez novel.
1: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from the Times and the Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, Abandoned in the Gulf. The sound you're hearing is audio Louise recorded on board.
2: The most important thing you need to know about this boat, the MT Iber, is that it is not a great-looking boat. This boat has been through a bit of a tricky time.
1: Louise Callahan is the Middle East correspondent for the Sunday Times. On this programme, she's told us about lions in war zones, Covid in Sweden, people smugglers in Istanbul and today an oil tanker in the Gulf.
2: Which has been, it's been around for a while, and it's kind of rusted, slightly miserable-looking, but bit forlorn. And at the moment, it is at anchor in a place called Dubai Maritime City, which is a couple of miles from the city centre in Dubai. It's been there for, um, for a few months. The boat was built in 2008. It's 330 feet long. 60 foot wide and then at one end it has kind of cruise quarters, provision stores, air conditioners, but all of this is to say that it's not a very big boat and it's not in very good condition.
1: So essentially it's a small oil tanker but it's not very old is it? 2008's not that old uh, or is it old for an oil tanker?
2: Relatively old for an oil tanker and also it's just not been kept in great condition. It hasn't been painted in a long time, the engine barely works.
1: Now, Let's get to how you came across MTI in the first place. And I suppose the first question is, had you heard about this thing that you call seafarer abandonment before this?
2: It was something that I was vaguely aware of. Every every couple of years, you hear a story which sounds almost too crazy to believe. It's always roughly the same. A crew of a few people had been stranded on a boat in the middle of the ocean for a couple of years. That's always the scenario that you get presented with. I've heard about this happening a couple of times, but this story was one that just grabbed me from the beginning. It was just so unlikely.
1: So I have to say, before this, I'd never known that there was such a thing. I'd heard of castaways. I'd heard of people in small boats because their ship had sunk. I've never heard of this before. People essentially abandoned on ships that aren't going anywhere. Now, can you just tell us first how you got? Because you went to the empty Iber, how did you get there?
2: Well, it took a really long time. So I started looking into this issue of seafarer abandonment, and I thought I've just got to get on board one of these ships, you know, to really tell the story of of the crews that get get stuck on board these ships. You've really got to be there. You've got to see what it's like and talk to them in person, and that's really, really difficult to do. I was in Dubai working on a few other stories and I started asking around quite cheerfully at first, sort of, does anyone, anyone know any boats uh, that are abandoned that I could go and jump onto? I was talking to various seafarers and got everyone from marine insurers to, I mean, just anyone I could get hold of really. And I got a resounding no from all of them because of the very simple reason that you can't just drive out on a small boat and jump on board a ship because you know, of course, there are like maritime safety regulations, as COVID-19, and authorities would be really afraid that you were smuggling something on board. I mean, so there's all these rules. And then I heard that the empty ibo had been taken into port.
1: Right. So you somehow or other got into the port area where the ship was, and you just, what, climbed the walkway?
2: Yep. Just climbed right up. I'd been in contact with uh, a charity that was helping the sailors on board beforehand so I'd let them know that I was coming and and they'd given me the number of some of the sailors on board so I told them look I'm going to try and I'm going to try and come let's see what happens and they said sure go for it so yeah I climbed up the side of the Iber and went there and started talking to all the sailors there.
1: Paint this picture for me you come up and you're on deck and what are you looking at and how do you get to meet them?
2: So the boat's 330 feet long but the actual living quarters and, and the area where the crew stays is, is really small it's i think it's about five floors but about three two or three rooms on each floor you walk inside these kind of cabins and you can tell for a start that the thing that really hits you is that no one's cleaned there for a while it's this really kind of musty sour smell like boys changing rooms at a gym also they've been cooking so there were all these kind of food smells you know there are five guys who've been stuck inside this really small place for for a very long time.
1: Now, the principal story that you told was of a man called Vinay. Can you just describe him for us?
2: So Vinay Kumar is in his early 30s. He's from Himachal Pradesh in northern India, which is this kind of mountainous region, very famous for its beautiful scenery It's very nice and cool up there, unlike Dubai.
1: Louise would write that at his worst, Vinny's skin was covered in sores, his hair long and lank. He'd lost 13 kilos and his cheekbones jutted out over his wispy beard. When she got on board the boat, they were doing a little better.
2: And he was just really, really eager to talk. He had gone through something really extraordinary and he he wanted to tell me about what had happened.
1: You say he's from the mountainous, cool area of northern India. And here he is on the not mountainous boat in the middle of in the middle of the Gulf, which is very hot. How did he get there?
2: The way that he explained it, he'd always been seen by everyone in his village as this kind of renegade, just a, a kind of unusual guy. So his family, they've lived in that village forever. They're Farmers, but he just, for whatever reason that he couldn't quite explain, had just always wanted to to go to sea. He he wanted to travel around the world, and being a seafarer was the was the thing that he decided on. So, one day he got on a train and left his village behind, left his wife and his child, and he went to Mumbai, way down in the south, to uh, to, to do a basic safety training for for seafarers. That takes about two weeks. It's not a particularly in-depth training. And with that in hand, he managed to get a job on a ship going to Malaysia. And, and, and that was it for him. I mean, he, he loved being at sea, um, traveling the world. And he's telling me about how he'd got to go to port in, in Greece, in Italy, and see all these countries that, that it would have been completely unthinkable for you know someone from that background to go to.
1: So he was living the life that he wanted to, presumably what, sending money back to his family in northern India?
2: Of course, yeah. I mean, v- Vinny's wages were subsidising half the village. And, you know, his, he'd, he'd go back between deployments and see his wife and children. And his whole family, despite thinking that he was a bit mad for doing this, they, they were very happy that he was, he was subsidising their lives.
1: So everything is going more or less as he had always wanted it to. And then what happened?
2: So then he got a job on board a ship. So this is not the MTI, but it's a very similar tanker, which was, which was quite nearby. He turned up on that ship one day and to his shock found that the condition of the ship was really bad. It was sort of rusted. The engine wasn't working. And there was only one other sailor on board, another Indian guy. So together, they just realised quite quickly that they'd been abandoned, that they'd been tricked, that the ship wasn't going anywhere, and that their job was just to sort of make sure the ship didn't sink, just to be kind of caretakers more than anything else. They didn't have any food. And this is just absolutely insane. When he was explaining to me, I couldn't believe it. Like They broke open the life rafts for the emergency rations. That's how little food they had. They lived off hard biscuits for like several weeks going into months. And they didn't have any electricity. So imagine it's, it's 40 degrees, probably more, during the summer. And you're just sitting there, and there's no AC, you can't charge your phone. Occasionally, he'd turn his phone on for a minute or so and make a call to his family or to the people who put him on board the ship, this shipping management company, to say, you know, what the hell's happening. And they'd say, oh, well, you know, we're going to sort this out, don't worry, just hang on another few days. And this would just continue and continue and continue. And there's not really a whole lot he could do about it. Like Between them, the... The two of those sailors, I mean, what could they possibly do?
1: So essentially, he's a he's a boat sitter and getting into an increasingly desperate situation uh, and so on. But he doesn't stay on that boat.
2: So after a few months, Vinny got what he thought was some very good news, which was that him and, and the sailor that he was with would be moved to another boat. So he was overjoyed. He thought it would be great. So th- he gets taken on board this other tanker called the Empty Iber. But when he goes on board there, he realises that this, the situation is pretty similar. Vinny had again been tricked into going on board a abandoned ship.
1: Vinny is picked up by the by the management company, transfer from one boat to the other, and discovers that this boat is pretty much like the first boat, which is it's not going anywhere, and he's just boat sitting. Who's he with at this point?
2: So he's with four other crew members, three of whom were there before he arrived. And they're a mix of people from the most common seafaring countries. So India, Pakistan, Myanmar. There's no captain on board the boat.
1: The other four crew members of the MT Iber look like the castaway survivors of a shipwreck. They had long stopped wearing proper clothes. Around noon, she wrote, the temperature would soar to about... 45 degrees centigrade, and the iron deck would burn their feet if they tried to walk on it.
2: There's a really strong feeling on board the boat that they can't go anywhere, that even if there is an emergency, they will be unable to move the boat anywhere. And it's, it's just in really bad condition. So if you think of the fact that they're, they're stuck on board the ship... And around them that they are aware that all the engines and all the machinery, all that's kind of breaking and rusting. And they're kind of doing their best to maintain it. But the level of knowledge is, is not high. You know, Vinny's gone on his 15 day safety training course. And he has had experience working in other ships these years that he's been a seafarer. But it's not the case that these are very highly educated sailors. They are pretty much able to keep the boat afloat and to maintain some of the machinery, but they are all very aware of the fact that if an emergency comes, they are not going to be able to take the boat into safety.
1: Who's the most senior person on board?
2: That's Ne Win. He's the chief engineer. He's from Myanmar. And he is quite experienced, but at the same time, he's not a captain at the end of the day. He's not a first mate.
1: So, have they been told? don't worry this is only going to be a short term situation we'll get you off soon is that is that's what h- has been said to them
2: yeah absolutely both vinny and Wynn are really really proactive people vinny's managed to get hold of the owner's number he's calling him he's bothering the shipping management company so is naywin you know they're kind of messaging they're emailing everyone that they can think of to try and to try and get some help but Constantly, all they get is this response from the owner saying, Well, don't worry. Next week, the money will come. In one month, the money will come. You know, if you just hold out, oh, don't let the authorities know because you guys haven't got visas for the UAE, just sit tight and the money will be with you soon. But then the months pile up. By the time that that Vinny got on board the IBA, none of the other guys had been paid for about a year. A year? More than a year. More than a year. Yeah. The issue with this that I kept coming across is that it it builds up. So the owners or the shipping management company trick the seafarers into staying on by saying, oh, the money's coming next week, the money's coming next week. Once you've done that for a few months, you start being owed quite a lot of money. And then you kind of don't want to leave because you think, well, actually, we're talking about several thousand dollars here. For me, that's a huge amount of cash. So I'll stay on for a bit longer. Whereas if if at the beginning... They had been aware that this was a completely lost cause. They'd, of course, have somehow managed to get off the boat.
1: For week after week and then month after month, they're not being paid, although they're being promised. They're on a boat in the heat, in a, a really hot place. What do they do during the days and the evenings? What happens to them?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I asked them that as well, and it took a while to get an answer. I think the answer is not a whole lot because there was only electricity on board the boat for about an hour a day. I mean basically they wanted to save fuel because they didn't know when the next fuel shipment would be coming. They do not have fans and they're just sitting out there in this 40 45 degree heat just in the burning burning sun in in the sea. They'd sort of potter around during the day and you know maintain bits of the engine. But in the evening they win the chief engineer they'd charge his laptop and then after that, they'd sit down and, and watch the Die Hard films, which they had saved on his laptop. They'd all been dubbed into Hindi, so about, only about half the crew could understand them. But, but they went for it anyway.
1: Bruce Willis was all they had.
2: <laughs> he was all they had. Okay,
1: Who is this man?
2: Yeah, they told me their favourite was the fourth one. That was, everyone was very certain about that. Yeah, I mean, they found various ways of entertaining themselves. I think a lot of the time they were just, they, were, they didn't have enough water, they didn't have enough food. So a lot of the time they were just too tired and dehydrated to do anything, really. They were rationing out food and water very, very strictly, because they didn't know when the next delivery would come from a charity or from the port authority. They'd have, you know, a few cups of water maybe in the morning. They were sharing out a couple of handfuls of rice a day, maybe a chapati.
1: It was, was one of the ways in which they could kind of supplement their diet by fishing.
2: Oh, well, they tried. But I don't know if there was just very little fish in those waters or if they were just spectacularly bad at fishing. But the, the entire time that they were on board, they only caught two fish. They caught them in the same day. And the way that these guys' faces lit up when they told me about that day, it was, you know, it was like Christmas. <laughs> the only other thing that they managed to catch was a bunch of watermelons. So they were standing on the deck one day, and they just started seeing watermelons bobbing past them in the sea. I mean, it's like something out of a Gabriel Garcia Marquez novel. So they grabbed nets and they, they threw them into the water and used it to scoop the melons up. And so they're just standing there. They can't, see, they can't see any other ships around them. They can't see any other people around them. But there's this shoal of melons gently drifting past them. Anyway, so they managed to get some of them on board and they, they split them open on the floor and and ate them there. But it just, I mean, especially given how hot and dehydrated and tired they were, that must have just been exceptionally trippy.
1: Did they ever feel in any way endangered in the sense that, did they ever feel that they might get ill or they might, well, actually starve to death?
2: Yeah, I think they all thought at some point that they might die. I don't know if they ever really thought that they would starve to death, but they were all very seriously worried about the lack of water. And I think they were also afraid that they would just stay there until, until they eventually got sick or, you know, they got, they got kidney damage from being that dehydrated the whole time and that they wouldn't be able to find a doctor and that they would die.
1: So, so all this time they're contacting people and emailing them and just and telling them their situation and no help is coming.
2: No, no help is coming. I mean, it, it's it's just bizarre. But at the same time, there is this that they're, they're trying very hard to get help. But at the same time, there is this balance where they're also afraid that if they complain too much or to the wrong person, they could, you know, not be given their wages or they could be blacklisted. Within the crew, it was quite divided. Vinny and the chief engineer were both very very pushy. And we're saying, you know, look, look, this is completely unacceptable. We need, we need to figure this out. And a few of the others were, I think, more afraid uh, of what would happen to them.
1: And then a storm arose and changed everything. But first, a message from a colleague. Hi, I'm George Buffnot, the deputy editor of the Sunday Times Insight investigations team. It's you, the listeners and subscribers, who enable the Insight team to investigate the government's response to the pandemic. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. If you subscribe today, you can enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
2: a storm started whipping up and the wind speeds were rising and uh, the seafarers on board the ivert started getting really worried. One of the anchor chains, as if there's two anchors on the ivert, and one of the anchor chains had already broken a few weeks before just through lack of maintenance. The authorities were aware of that, someone had come on board and checked it, but then during the storm the other anchor chain broke. So the boat was set adrift. I mean, it's the middle of the night. These guys are absolutely terrified. Naywin, Wynn, the chief engineer, was standing on the bridge trying to direct everything, whereas Vinay was down in the engine room. You know, everyone's falling about everywhere. The boat was rolling really hard from side to side. Everyone's falling about everywhere. It's just a complete panic was the way that they described it to me. The boat was basically set adrift. They had been stuck in the same place outside uh, the port of Sharjah for, for a long time. But now for, for the first time they, they were moving. And incredibly enough, and I still cannot quite get my head around how this happened, but they were blown off course and they ran aground on a beach at Umakwain, which is it's a tourist beach in the UAE. <laughs> so in the morning after that storm, Vinnie Vinny got up and he told me that he looked out over the you know, over the edge of the boat and he saw all these You know, ladies in bikinis, some kids playing in the water, and and they're all having a great time. I mean, this this became this became a tourist attraction in the UAE because everyone was saying, "Oh, do you want to go down to the beach and look at the big tanker that's been washed up?" So there's these guys. You know, they look like scarecrows. You know, they're Vinny's lost like several stone. They've they've all got raggedy long beards. They look like Tom Hanks and Castaway. All of them are just wearing sort of barely a pair of shorts. That's about it. And all of a sudden they're face to face with a bunch of holidaymakers sat on the beach drinking juice and coffee, having a good look at them.
1: (laughs) So (laughs) it is quite a surreal prospect. So the boat is now on the beach. I presume that that means that somebody now has to take some action because you can't just have 338 foot tankers on tourist beaches.
2: It made all the difference in the world. For years, these guys were just stuck out in the sea, kind of in the middle of nowhere, could very easily be ignored by just about everyone. But now they were in your face. You know, the tourists could walk down into the surf and touch the side of the ship. Someone had to do something about it. At that stage, things started to change quite rapidly. The owner found a buyer for the ship. Because even though it was in such miserable condition it was still worth about a million dollars in spare parts wow yeah and then so after a series of long and incredibly tense discussions then eventually an agreement was made and the deal was that the new buyer would pay i think it was about 70 80 percent of the wages that were owed to the seafarers on board the iber in return they'd get off the boat, and he would be able to strip up for spare parts.
1: We'll come on to what happened to Vinnie afterwards in a moment. Let's talk about the lessons which we can kind of derive from all this, because one's immediate thought is, firstly, surely this doesn't happen very often. And then the other thing I take from what you've been saying is, well, actually, what's to stop it from happening more often?
2: I, I had a vague idea that this kind of thing happened. I'd heard stories about it before, but I had absolutely no concept of how much of a huge problem it was. We're, we're talking about hundreds of these ships are currently abandoned across the globe. And this is not you know, a Dubai problem or a UAE problem. This is a problem all over the world. It just affects such an extraordinary number of seafarers. And, and no one even really knows exactly how many there are the International Labour Organization and the International Maritime Organization, they together have this list of ships that have been abandoned. That's about 200 ships. A lot of experts that I spoke to said that they think that that's only a fraction, maybe about half, of all the ships that are currently abandoned around the world. I mean, that's just absolutely crazy. How does that happen? And the answer is is that it's happening increasingly. And it happens partly because of COVID-19, but also just since 2008, since so the financial crash, then a lot of shipping companies, especially sh- smaller shipping companies, have been working with tighter margins. So that means when when one payment doesn't come through, then they all of a sudden don't have enough money to pay the sailors, or they all of a sudden don't have enough money to pay for the fuel to take the next load of goods. It can be as simple as that. So I, I mean, I hadn't realized before writing the story how important seafarers were to trade. There's 1.6 million seafarers.
1: 1.6 million?
2: Million serving on internationally trading merchant ships across the world. And every year, 11 billion tonnes of goods are transported by ship. I mean, we saw earlier this year when the Ever Given, when this this huge ship was was stuck in the Suez Canal, the enormous effects that it had on world trade. I think, we like, I just absolutely was not aware of how incredibly important the, the maritime trade is Just to keep the world ticking along, you know, whether that's oil or whether that's your bit of crap that you bought off Amazon because you were bored during lockdown, you know, it all comes to us by sea. There are regulations which are meant to stop this kind of thing happening. For example, the UAE just passed new legislation, which is supposed to mean that cases of abandonment are resolved far more quickly. At the moment the court process whereby a ship can be seized and auctioned and the proceeds given to the crew it's incredibly long-winded it can take about 3 years. And at the end of it you're still just not sure that you're actually going to get paid off. So now they've introduced new legislation which is supposed to change that. And of course there are guidelines in place by flag states so you know if your ship is flagged you know has a Panamanian flag then there should be rules and regulations in place to stop this kind of thing happening. Panama should help repatriate
1: the sailors. It's funny because I think I'd imagined that there was some kind of huge overarching law which all governments had signed up to and some kind of international rescue force that sorted things out in situations like this. But What you're describing is it's up to individual states how they enforce whatever international law there is. And quite often, that means there isn't really anything.
2: There are laws and regulations that do exist and institutions that are meant to help seafarers. But at the end of the day, they're they're not doing the job that they're meant to be doing. They're not working closely together enough. They're not working quickly enough. And because countries in the Gulf haven't signed the MLC, the Maritime Labour Convention, because it allows workers to unionise, which is illegal in much of the Gulf, then that means that it's uh, impossible to enforce a lot of the regulations involved there.
1: Okay, let's go back to Vinny now. What happened to him in the end?
2: So, in the end, after more than a year stuck on board the Iber, Zinni was paid the majority of the wages that he was owned. So that's about 545 pounds a month. And he managed to go home. At the moment, he's made it back to Himachal Pradesh, to, to his village, and he's been sending me videos of him playing cricket with his friends. He's back with his two kids. And the crazy thing is that for all of this suffering and the, the horror that these guys went through, the, the way that people in the maritime industry talk about the outcome of the IBA was that it was it was a success. You know, this is a best case scenario. Oh, they, they got paid most of their wages and managed to go home. Well, actually, it's it's not a best case scenario. It's, it's, it's appalling. It should not be like this. They should not have been left on board in these appalling conditions to to suffer for so long, even if they did end up managing to go home in the end.
1: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Middle East correspondent for The Sunday Times, Louise Callaghan. And you can read more of Louise's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producers were Poppy Damon and Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. And sound design was by Tom Birchall. And look, if you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, we really love those, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to times at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon.